Do you know Frank Lloyd Wright, the house guy? I know who he is and I know what his houses look like. I've seen his houses. You can tour them. But what I didn't know is that there is a true crime case that involves Frank Lloyd Wright. Did you know this? I didn't know this. And it is crazy. So let me tell you all about it. Today, I'm going to tell you about how one of Frank Lloyd Wright's employees murdered seven people with a hatchet and set Frank Lloyd Wright's house on fire. Yeah, he rebuilt the house twice in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And now you can tour it, and some people say it's haunted. But anyway, today, I'm going to tell you the story about the massacre at Taliesin. Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime podcast. My name is Elise and my podcast is called What It Is because I have a series on YouTube where I post a time-lapse video of myself cleaning my house while at the same time I am telling you a true crime story because I love listening to true crime while I clean. So for me, they go hand in hand, but some people find the cleaning footage too distracting or they just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast, so be sure to check the show notes on this episode for specific trigger warnings, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Real quick for the podcast listeners, I used my break to dig into Spotify a bit more, which I don't normally use. Like, I don't host my podcast through Spotify. I just use my host to put it on Spotify and all the others, like Apple Podcasts. But the majority of you lovely, lovely listeners use Spotify right now. So I figured out how to get into my Spotify-specific analytics, and I found the interaction section, and I learned how to use Q&As and polls. And there are definitely times when I ask you a question like, who do you think did it? Or why do you think they did that? And I usually just tell you to go to my YouTube community tab or to my Instagram. But now I can just ask you those questions directly in Spotify on each episode and you can answer them in there if you want to. So look at me. I'm figuring things out. I'm becoming a podcaster. Okay, that's all. I just wanted to let you know to look for those. I will put a poll on this episode today just to try out that feature and see how it works. Now on to the episode. Welcome back, everybody. I missed you. <laughs> it's Friday. It's 4.30 p.m. I'm in Wisconsin in December, so it is pitch black. So it's a little bit dark and spooky, but it's happy hour and I have a cocktail today. So feel free to grab one too and join me. All my ice has melted. So this looks like water. It's a shame, but it's a vodka soda. But join me if you'd like. Ugh, I missed you guys. What's it been? A month? More, more than a month? I don't even remember. But I took some time off from my cleaning and crime series. I've been working a ton. I've been enjoying the holiday season. I cut my hair. You usually can't see the bottom of my hair the way I shoot my videos, but and I have a new cat that we didn't intend on getting, but she's part of the family now. If you want the backstory on biscuits, I posted the story on my YouTube community tab and on my Instagram. So feel free to go there and catch up. It's a long story. So anyway, biscuits is great. Everything is great. And I'm back. <laughs> now we're calling this episode the final episode of season one of Cleaning in Crime, which I started in October of 2022. 
which is crazy. It's been over a year that we've been making these episodes and I've been loving every minute of it. I wish I had more time and I wish this was my full-time job, but unfortunately I have another full-time job where I work 40 to 50 hours a week, so I'm doing my best. <laughs> but after today's episode, I'm going to take the rest of December off. I'm going to enjoy the holidays with my family. I'm going to research. I'm going to get ahead on my cases. I'm going to pick the cases that I'm going to do for a good chunk of 2024. And then in January, I will start with season two of Cleaning and Crime, and I will be posting every other Monday. And then wherever possible, if I have the chance, I will post bonus episodes. And some of them may be podcast-only, audio-only bonus episodes. But with my current job, it's just not possible for me to balance posting once a week and have my videos be any good. You know what I mean? Now, if I were to ever post a bonus podcast-only episode, I would let you know in my YouTube community tab or on Instagram. So that is my update. And now, on to the crime. Today, we're going to talk about Frank Lloyd Wright. Do you know him? He's the famous architect with the flat houses. Now, I know him well because I grew up in northern Illinois, and there's a bunch of Wright houses in northern Illinois. But what I didn't know was that seven people were axed to death and burned alive in Frank Lloyd Wright's house while he was at work. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And it's awful. And I'm going to tell you all about it. But first, I feel like it's necessary to tell you about Frank Lloyd Wright. One, because it's important for the story. B, because I went down a rabbit hole and I learned so much about Frank Lloyd Wright and I want to share it with you. And three, because it's all super interesting. So let's get into it. Now, Frank Lincoln Wright was born on June 8th, 1867 in Richland, Wisconsin. And then shortly after that, they moved to the Madison area. Now, Frank's mother, Anna, the way Frank would tell it, had big dreams of her son, Frank, becoming a famous architect. So she bought him Froebel blocks to encourage the love of building and architecture. And I guess it worked. Now, Frank's mom and dad got married after they met in church. Kind of like, you know, those situations where it's like, I need to marry someone in the church, like in this church. And well, you're the best option here. So you'll do. So it's not like they fell in love and got married. It was more of a marriage of convenience and proximity. <laughs> Frank's father was a lot of things. He was a musician. He was an artist, a preacher. I'm pretty sure he had a law degree too. And he was also really bad with money. And he started a lot of churches, but then he couldn't figure out how to keep them afloat. So they would go under and then they would move around a lot. Frank had a super weird relationship with his mom. He was her favorite child. And Anna, his mother, she didn't really like her husband that much. So she would really hang out with Frank all the time. And I guess she thought her daughters were basically useless. Like they were just going to become mothers and not become anything important. But Frank... He was going to be somebody, hopefully an architect. And she would talk to Frank about her problems and her relationship with his dad and just kind of ignored her husband to the point that she actually drove him away. And so Frank's dad moved out and left and went to go live by his ex-wife and their kids. But I guess to be fair, she didn't really like him that much. Anyway, so after his father left, Frank harbored a bunch of resentment towards his father for leaving. And he dropped the Lincoln middle name that he got from his father's side and he switched his middle name to Lloyd, which was his mother's maiden name. So he became 
Frank Lloyd Wright. And after taking his mother's maiden name, he began putting his mother way up on a pedestal. Now, some actually believe that Frank got his artistic side and his flair for architecture from his father, but Frank would never admit that. It was all his mother's influence. It was all about the Froebel blocks. Now, as a kid, Frank would work on his uncle's farm in Spring Green, Wisconsin, and he didn't like the farming part, but he loved the land. He loved the way it looked. He loved the rolling hills. And going to Spring Green in the summers were really fond memories from Frank's childhood. Now, Frank got to high school and then he got a flair for the dramatic and he became a great liar. And by the time Frank got to college at the University of Wisconsin, he started telling everyone he met that he was in architecture school. But really, he was just in undergrad for engineering. Definitely a step on the ladder toward architecture, but it's kind of like telling people like, oh, I'm in law school, but you're just a freshman undergrad pre-law. You know what I mean? But whatever. He was jumping the gun to make himself look cooler. I've heard worse crimes. Now, while at university, Frank got the opportunity to build the science building at the University of Wisconsin. So he was like an intern helping with the new building. And this is where he dipped his toe into actually building something. And his love for engineering and architecture really solidified. But he didn't stay at that school and finish. He dropped out and he decided to move to Chicago. So the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871, which I'm sure you've all heard about, and Mrs. O'Leary's cow and whatever, which isn't true, but it's a great story, destroyed a big chunk of the city, right? And after that, architects flocked to Chicago to help rebuild the city and make a name for themselves. So Chicago at this time was a hot spot for architects. So naturally, that's where Frank wanted to be. But Frank's mother, Anna, was not pleased. She didn't want her precious baby to leave her. So she had another one of her sons go and talk to Frank and try to convince him to not leave his mommy. And the brother went and talked to Frank and tried to convince him to stay because if he moved to Chicago, he was going to be exposed to untoward activities and loose women. Nobody wants that. (laughs) Whatever, but it didn't work. Frank really wanted to move to Chicago. He ditched his mama and he went. However, Frank's mom, Anna, was not having it. And if her son was going to Chicago, she was going to go too. (laughs) So Frank and his mother, Anna, actually moved in together with a woman that Anna knew through mutuals at her church. And this woman was Augusta Chapin, a female minister. Very interesting. Not very common in 1871. Not very common now, you know. But anyway, Augusta took them in and she knew people because she was a minister in Chicago. And she ended up hooking Frank up with a meeting with a buddy of hers that got Frank a job as a tracer of architectural drawings for the city of Chicago. So she really got his foot in the door in the architecture world. And as soon as he jumped into the architectural scene, he completely changed his personality. He became a flamboyant, super outgoing city boy who loved the nightlife and just went out schmoozing, just completely changed his whole personality to fit in with the in crowd. And it worked. And once he was in the in crowd, he met the right people. He quit his job and he started working with Adler and Sullivan, which was a big time firm in Chicago. And then Frank Lloyd Wright was full on popular. Lar. La, 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 la. Anyway, so Frank worked with Adler and Sullivan for a while, and he was making a shitload of money. But Frank inherited his skills of being shitty with money from his father, and he had expensive taste. So he was blowing more money than he was taking in. So he started taking freelance architecture work to pay off his debts, which he called building bootleg houses 
And during this time, he built nine houses. Most of them were like the usual Queen Anne's or colonial revivals. Like he didn't really have a style of his own yet, but he would throw in his own flair here and there, like open floor plans, which was not common, or bands of horizontal windows. Just wild, crazy shit. Now, most of the architects in Chicago at this time were like Gothic and Victorian and things were all very ornate and like swirly whirly, you know. And Sullivan, the guy that Frank Lloyd Wright worked for, around this time, he started getting really loud about how that shit was pretentious. And it, quote, set architects back 50 years, end quote. And that there needed to be a push towards the modern. And that swirly whirly doodads on staircases were superfluous. We need more straight lines. Well, people still liked swirly whirly. And he pissed a lot of people off saying that shit. So he basically ruined his reputation by like bad-mouthing his peers' work. And everyone thought he was a dick and then nobody wanted to work with him anymore. Now, Frank actually agreed with Sullivan. He too liked straight lines. He learned to build with Froebel blocks. Of course he liked straight lines, but he also liked being popular. So he turned his back on Sullivan, stole all of Sullivan's ideas, and left. So Frank started building things that were more modern, more straight lined, open floor plan, lots of straight horizontal bands of windows, blah, 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 getting closer to the style that we know now. But he did get all the inspiration from Sullivan, kind of stole some of his ideas, you know. And I guess Frank and Sullivan got in a big argument on the streets after their breakup. (laughs) Like, how could you leave me? How could you steal my ideas? I thought we were going to do these great things together, blah, blah. And there was this big argument on the streets. And people that saw the argument likened it to a lover's quarrel. Like, it was very passionate. But anyway, they broke up. So Frank is using Sullivan's ideas, (laughs) making new buildings, making a name for himself. And it's around this time that he meets Kitty, Catherine Kitty Tobin in 1889. Now she was 16 when they met and Frank was 22 and they met at a costume party. I read somewhere that he was dressed up as Napoleon Bonaparte. I don't know if that's true, but I hope it is because that's a great story. And this is how they meet. Frank is apparently dressed maybe as Napoleon and he's like flailing about and flamboyantly telling this elaborate story. And he's like flinging his arms around and then he bumps into Kitty and they both smash into each other and they fall and he lands on top of her. (laughs) Anyway, I guess she liked that. (laughs) And they spent the rest of the party hanging out together. And the rest is history. They got married a few months later when she was 16. So Frank and Kitty got alone and they built their first house together in Oak Park, Illinois. And he never really stopped building that house or tinkering with it the whole time they lived there until they sold it and moved on to a new house. And then he kept building bigger and better houses in Oak Park and they would move to the bigger and better house to accommodate more and more children because they ended up having six kids. So several Frank Lloyd Wright houses go up in Oak Park, Illinois, and the neighbors are taking notice and they're impressed with his modern prairie style homes that he's starting to build. So people in the area started commissioning Frank to build houses for them because it was easier to have a local guy build them a cool modern house rather than going into Chicago and trying to find a famous architect to come down to Oak Park and build for them there. So there are a shitload of Frank Lloyd Wright houses in Oak Park, Illinois. 
most still privately owned to this day. And I guess every year, uh, a lot of the homeowners in the area get together and they have like a big right home tour. And it's really expensive to get tickets, but you can just go through the town and like go to all the Frank Lloyd Wright houses and like go into them and tour the inside, even though people are living there. I would love that. I love going into people's houses so much. Like I want to see where you put your chairs. I want to see how you angle your couch. I want to open up your kitchen cabinets so badly. But anyway, Frank, after building these houses, would I guess keep going back into the houses? He would go and sneak in when they weren't home to look for ugly decor and hide it and then move their furniture around in a way that he liked. Because <laughs> he didn't want the house that he built to look shitty with your shitty decor. <laughs> That's crazy. Now, around this time, from 1900 to 1910, Frank really solidified the prairie style that he's known for. And he was keeping super busy. He built 50 homes in this decade, all over southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois. So he was busy. Now, despite his success during this period, he was broke as shit. But even when he went into debt and creditors were knocking at his door, he would just turn on the charm. And he would just talk his way out of debt. God, if only we could... <laughs> do that now <laughs> like one creditor was yelling at him about getting paid and frank just wrapped his arms around the guy and was like what's a little bit of money between friends and it worked and another creditor got really angry and was screaming at him about being paid and frank stayed really calm and then he said oh are you worried about it and the guy was like yes yes i'm worried about the money and frank said well if you're worried why would I be worried about the money too? There's no sense in both of us worrying about it. <laughs> what a guy. So 1903, Kitty's at home raising six kids and just doing everything at home. And Frank is building homes for neighbors and friends and commissioning a ton of jobs. And he starts building a house for a couple, Edwin Cheney and Martha, who went by Maymaw Borthwick Cheney, who was pregnant with her second kid. Now Maymaw was described as an early feminist, a modern woman with interests outside the home, which is shocking. She's very intelligent. She had a master's degree and continued to take college courses even after she had gotten her master's. And it was not the type to want to just stay home with the kids. She was adventurous. She loved to travel, even by herself. Like in 1903, she loved studying, she loved learning, and she spoke several languages. And so naturally, she was very involved in the planning of the new house. I think you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> Frank was very impressed with Maymaw. She was the complete opposite of his wife, Kitty, who was very content to stay home with the kids and be a housewife. And Kitty didn't want anything to change. While Maymaw didn't want to be a housewife and wasn't very traditionally maternal, totally content to leave the kids with a nanny and like go off to Europe and spend a month traveling and doing her own thing. And both are good. They were just two very, very different women. And honestly, at the time, women like Maymaw were not very common. Well, anyway, you guessed it. <laughs> Frank and Maymaw began an affair. Now, it wasn't quick. They met and started working on the house in 1903, and the affair began in 1907. So this was a slow burn. So it started out as platonic and grew into something more. So after Maymaw and Edwin's house was done, Frank kept coming over to move chairs and check for ugly decor. 
and eventually fool around with Mama when Edwin wasn't home in the open concept living room. And people in Oak Park started noticing and started talking when they started seeing Mama going for joy rides in Frank Lloyd Wright's car. It was salacious. So the secret was not safe for long. Everybody knew by like 1908. <laughs> now, once the truth came out and even both Kitty and Edwin knew of the affair between Frank and Mama, Frank and Mayma, rather than feeling shame, were like, you know what? We're in love. We're soulmates. Why should we be ashamed of that? Let's run away together. So they just left and they just went to Europe. <laughs> so it's 1909. Frank totally ditched Kitty with the six kids. Mayma ditched the two kids with Edwin and they just went to Berlin for a sexy, sexy vacation. And Frank ditched Kitty and the kids with all of his stupid debts. One source even said that when Frank left for Berlin with Mayma, he left a $900 grocery bill on the kitchen table, which Time Money Converter says would be equivalent to $27,000 today. <laughs> How much freaking duck and foie gras and caviar was that guy buying? Like, Jesus. And pay for the damn grocery bill before you ditch your wife and six kids to go on a sexy vacation with your mistress. What the? What the hell? What a guy. Anyway, Frank and Maymaw ran off to Berlin. And Frank was doing architecture there and studying and meeting people and networking and whatever. And Maymaw was very intelligent and found jobs translating poetry into many different languages. So... They were doing great. But this wasn't just some small town domestic dispute. This was front page news, apparently. Like every week. For years. <laughs> they were like the Kardashian drama of the time. Famous Chicago architect Frank Lloyd Wright steals the wife of a customer, his best friend, which wasn't true, but it was a really good headline. And she, Mayma, is an amoral hussy who abandoned her children, leaving them alone with their father. I mean, unheard of. To gallivant around Europe. I mean, reporters were all over it. And then they were banging down the doors of Kitty and Edwin and getting statements. And both Edwin and Kitty were in the paper and Edwin was like, screw this guy, stole my wife, built me a house, but stole my wife. And Kitty, Kitty stood by her man. And she was like, oh, Frank, he's just philandering a little bit. He needs to figure himself out. But I know in my heart that he'll come back to where he belongs with his family because he loves his children. And when he comes back, everything will be back the way it was. I feel so bad for Kitty. Six kids, her husband cheats on her, runs off to Europe with her, and leaves her with a $27,000 grocery bill. Like, what the fuck? So Frank and Mayma are out on this romantic holiday for months, but eventually they ran out of money. Now, Mayma stayed there and kept working, but Frank couldn't get his usual creditors to give him money when he was abroad sleeping with some other woman when he was married. Like, it was a scandal. So creditors were like, no, I'm not giving you money. You're cheating on your wife. I guess that's bad for business when you're a creditor. I don't know. But nobody would loan him money because he was such a slut. So after a while, in 1910, Frank did come home to Kitty, but most believe it was just to get his financial affairs in order. So he came back, made it look like he was coming back for good to be with his wife and children, tried to restore his image, and then got back to work trying to secure loans. And he even told one creditor, Darwin Martin, Oh, I need a loan. But that whole affair business, totally over. No, I'm, I'm back with my wife and my kids. Everything has been made right. 
I need to build a new house, but it's for my mother. It's a cottage for my mother. It's totally not a sex house for me and my mistress. Like, don't even worry about it. And Darwin believed him and loaned him $25,000, which Frank used to build a sex house for him and Mayma. <laughs> Side note, that guy that loaned him that money, Darwin Martin, over the years, that guy loaned Frank Lloyd Wright about $75,000. And then when the Great Depression hit and the stock market tanked, he lost everything and he was broke. Like he went from like a very wealthy man to broke for the rest of his life. And Frank never paid those loans back. But when Frank wrote his autobiography, he did make sure that Darwin got a free copy. What a guy. Anyway, Frank left Kitty again once he secured his loans and he got to work building a sex house for him and Mayma. <laughs> Oh, the papers went crazy again. And now no one in Chicago wanted to work with him because he's such a slut. And Frank and Mayma can't afford to just keep backpacking across Europe. So Frank's mother, Anna, sees her opportunity to get her son back to Wisconsin. And she's like, you know what, honey? You always loved Spring Green so much. You should build a house there. So Anna buys the land adjacent to Frank's uncle's property on April 10th, 1911. And so Anna buying the land that was adjacent to the uncle's property over time ended up becoming an 800 acre estate. And Frank got to work building Taliesin, which I guess is named after a Welsh poet that wrote Anna's family's family motto, the truth against the world. I don't know. It seems pretentious. This whole story seems super pretentious. Really. <laughs> anyway, Frank loved the land, loved the area, loved the rolling hills. I mean, this area of Wisconsin really is beautiful. I may be biased about the state that I live in, but... It's a beautiful area. So as soon as the people of Spring Green found out that the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright was building a home there, they were pissed. They thought Frank and Mayma were immoral and slutty and they didn't want them setting a bad example for their children. And people were writing into the paper and demanding that the sheriff do something about this situation. But like, what, what are they going to do? But he continued to build his house and he wrote into the paper as well, demanding everyone just shut the hell up about his life. Why do they care so much? I do what I want. Mayma and I are soulmates. Mind your business. I mean, he did really seem like an arrogant, pompous son of a bitch. And he had a terrible relationship with the press. There was one interview that he did where he was asked why he should be allowed to like play house with his mistress while his wife and six kids were left alone in Oak Park. And he replied, there are rules for geniuses and then there are rules for everyone else when it comes to love and marriage. So basically, I'm a genius and I can do what I want. <laughs> okay, he's building Taliesin and he's also freelancing as well and still building other houses. And this is really where Frank honed in on his signature look that we all know today. He was really tired of the prairie home look because he had built like freaking 60 of them at this point. And now he was all about building with the land, not on top of it. Building the horizontal rather than the vertical. Bringing the outside to the inside. He was very inspired by Japanese architecture. He loved the flat lines. He loved the straight lines. And he really used Taliesin to experiment with what he really wanted to build. And it was also gigantic and sprawling, like huge, like more than 20,000 square feet. And he designed the house with 524 windows. That's a 
That's a lot of windows. And he didn't do his usual prairie home flat roofs like he did in all of his other houses because all of his other houses, like he didn't like downspouts and rain gutters because they were ugly and they took away from the beauty of the house, but he still wanted the flat roofs. So like all of his freaking roofs leaked. <laughs> but he didn't want Taliesin to leak because like this is his house. So he didn't do the flat roofs. He did like cantilevered roofs with lots of overhang, but he still didn't do rain gutters because that took away from the beauty and whatever. But also he wanted icicles, big icicles to form on the house so he could look out his window and see them during the Wisconsin winters. So he just left those off. No rain gutters. You're a liar. Everybody has rain gutters. So despite Spring Green not wanting him, Taliesin was built in 1911 and him and Mayma moved in and they lived there happily from 1912 to 1914. Now, Mayma ended up divorcing her husband, Edwin, and they came up with a custody arrangement that he would keep the two kids and they would do their schooling there with him. But then Mayma would have the kids for the summers and then they would visit frequently. But Kitty refused to give Frank a divorce and she held on to hope that this affair was going to fizzle out and that he was going to come back to Kitty and the kids. So Frank is still married but living with Mayma, who is now divorced. And then her kids would come up to Taliesin to visit for the summers and then for other just trips to visit their mom. And in usual Frank Lloyd Wright style, he continued working on the house even after they moved in. And he ended up adding drafting rooms and like a chapel. Eventually he turned it into a school. Like he never stopped adding to Taliesin. Frank made headlines again when he took out a life insurance policy for $50,000, naming Mayma as the beneficiary. The papers ripped Frank to shreds asking why his wife and children were left in the dust and wouldn't be getting any money but his mistress does and he replied to the article saying that his wife and children were well cared for and will want for nothing but once his right hand is not protecting mayma no one will come to her aid so basically he was saying that because of the press bad-mouthing mayma and no one liking her because she was with him he had to make sure she was set up for life because if he wasn't going to take care of her, nobody was. Frank still had a relationship with his kids and they did visit. And Frank's oldest son, John, actually wanted to be an architect and he was coming up frequently and working with Frank and studying under him kind of like an intern. So it's 1914 and Frank and his son, John, just got a contract to build Midway Gardens in Chicago. And Midway Gardens had a hefty price tag and a short window of time to complete because the financers wanted it to open that summer. And it was a big deal. It was going to be open year round, hosting high class concerts with indoor outdoor gardens, three terraces, a restaurant. And it was going to cost like $250,000, which would today be like almost $7 million. So Frank and his team were spending tons of time on it. And they were in Chicago constantly busting their asses to get it done on time. And they got it open on time and it opened on June 27th, 1914. But in true Frank Lloyd Wright fashion, they kept working on it diligently even after it opened. So Frank was bad with money. We know this. But he still managed to hire a staff to help maintain Taliesin. But it was pretty necessary. It was a huge property. Now, around the time Midway Gardens opened, Frank hired a black couple, Julian Carlton and his common-law wife, Gertrude, to help maintain the property. And they were both about 30, and they said they were from Barbados. Now, some believe they were actually from Alabama, 
but Julian thought telling Frank that he was from Barbados was more exotic or would seem to Frank more highbrow. So Gertrude cooked for the household and Julian served as a handyman slash butler. And Frank wasn't around much at home at this time, so they barely interacted. But it only took a few weeks before Julian fucking hated it there. They were the only black workers in a super isolated home out in East Jesus Nowhere, Wisconsin. And his bosses were like cut off from society because they were hussies and no one came over. It's like The Shining. And there were rumors that Julian and Gertrude didn't get along with Frank Lloyd Wright's other employees. Oh, and also Julian had a history of mental health struggles that Frank was not aware of and that no one talked about. In the months that led up to the terrible event that I'm about to tell you about, Julian had gotten in arguments with the rest of the staff. He was getting very aggressive, and he began sleeping with a hatchet next to his bed. And Gertrude heard him muttering to himself about killing people. So, not great. Now, Julian wanted to quit and leave Taliesin, but he didn't really want to admit that, so he had Gertrude tell Mayma that she hated it there and that she wanted to leave. So Gertrude told Mayma that they were looking for work in Chicago and that they would be leaving Taliesin on August 16th, 1914. Now, Mayma was fully capable of running the home and she was making money with her translating jobs. So she was good. And now it was summer. So her kids were there visiting for the summer. And her kids were 12-year-old John and 9-year-old Martha. And now even Gertrude, Julian's wife, said that she didn't notice that anything was wrong or suspicious or weird until the day before they were supposed to leave for Chicago on August 15th, 1914. That day, while Frank and his son John were in Chicago working on Midway Gardens, Frank got a disturbing phone call. Now, John, his son, didn't hear the voice on the other end of the line, but he did see his father's shocked face and hear his labored breathing. And then Frank hung up the phone and John said to him, what's happened, father? And Frank said to John, John, a taxi. Taliesin is on fire. So Frank and John got to the train station as quick as they could, but they were going to have to wait because the next train to that part of Wisconsin wasn't until that evening. And while they were waiting for the train, Frank got a telegram that said, come as fast as possible, serious trouble. And it was signed MBB, as in Mayma Booten Borthwick. Then after he gets the telegram, Frank looks up and he sees... Edwin Cheney, Mayma's ex-husband, arriving at the train station, also about to catch a train to that part of Wisconsin. So clearly, he had heard that something went down at Taliesin. Now, he wasn't about to jump up on a train and go to his ex-wife Mayma's aid, but his kids were up there. So he knew something went down. He was trying to get to his kids. And I guess the two men looked at each other and silently shook hands, and then they both got on a train to Wisconsin. Now, the three men got to Taliesin as quick as they could, and when they got there... It was carnage. Taliesin was in smoldering ruin, flames still burning. Neighbors were just spraying the home with a hose trying to keep the flames at bay. And they were tending to bodies strewn all over the yard, some of them still alive. So holy shit, what the hell happened? Now, after the chaos died down with the collection of statements from witnesses and survivors, this is the story that was pieced together. Gertrude had just made lunch for everyone at Taliesin. 
May Ma and her kids were in the West Wing, preparing to eat lunch in the screened-in terrace overlooking the Helena Valley and the beautiful swimming pool that Frank had installed. And in the East Wing, in the drafting room, were all the men, Frank's workers and associates, all preparing to have lunch as well. Now, these men included Herbert Fritz, handyman Tom Brunker, draftsman Emil Brodell, gardener David Limblum, carpenter William Weston, and William's young 13-year-old son, Ernest. Gertrude cooked the food, and Julian was about to serve it. Julian brought the lunch that Gertrude had cooked out to Mayma and her kids, and also, hanging on his hip, was a hatchet. He served the food to Mayma and the kids, and then stood behind them as they began to eat. Then, out of nowhere, Julian just cracked Mayma in the head with the hatchet, killing her instantly. Julian then killed Mayma's 12-year-old son, John, and then turned his attention to 9-year-old Martha. She had a chance to start running, but Julian chased her down and hit her with the hatchet. Sadly, she didn't die right away. Then, Julian just walked out and left to go serve lunch to the men in the East Wing. He served the men the food, and then he asked William Weston where he could find some gasoline because he had a rug he wanted to clean. William said, sure, no problem, and told him where to find the gasoline. Then Julian walked out and closed the door. And what the men in the drafting room didn't know was that Julian was barricading the door on the other side. Soon, the men started to notice a liquid seeping underneath the door. And at first they thought, oh, Julian said he was going to wash a rug. It's probably soapy water. But then they noticed the smell, and they're like, that's gasoline. Julian, after pouring the gas under the door, lit his pipe and then dropped his match, igniting the gasoline. And the fire caught and spread into the drafting room quick as hell. The men all jumped up and started slamming their bodies into the door trying to break out, but they didn't know that Julian had barricaded the door on the other side. And all the men are smashing into the door, and they're all catching fire. Now, Herbert Fritz acted quickly, and he just launched himself out the window, breaking through the glass and falling a story and a half down to the hill below. His arms snapped when he hit the ground, and it was a super steep hill outside the window, and he just rolled screaming on fire all the way down the hill with a broken arm. Um, Silver lining, though, the steep hill and the rolling put the fire out. (laughs) Now, Julian hadn't counted on people launching themselves out the windows. So when he heard the glass breaking, he ran around to the outside and he got outside to the window just as Emile Brodell was hopping out of the window. So Herbert Fritz had already rolled down to the bottom of the hill and was hiding. So Herbert looked up just in time to see his friend and colleague get murdered. As soon as Julian hit Emile, he ran back into the house to go back to the door that was barricaded, and Herbert snuck back up the hill to get back into the house to help the survivors. Now, back inside, the men had actually started to bust through the door and were spilling out into the courtyard on fire. But Julian had arrived back at the door just as the men started to fall out, and he started just picking them off one by one. Julian hit William Weston twice, but he didn't die. His 13-year-old son, Ernest, was killed right away. And Julian just hacked away at everyone and then left them all for dead and went off to go set fire to the rest of the house. So those who were killed immediately were Mayma, her 12-year-old son, John, Emile Bordell, who was the second one to jump out the window, and 13-year-old Ernest Weston. Everyone else survived at first. Now, gardener David Lindblom had a hatchet wound to the head and was burned badly. But he managed to get up, grab William Weston, and the two of them ran a half a mile to the next neighbor over that they knew how to phone. And once they called for help, they freaking ran a half a mile back. 
And they just grabbed a garden hose and started spraying the house to try and keep the fire at bay. Other neighbors saw smoke and made their way to Taliesin to help. When the neighbors got there, they first found nine-year-old Martha laying on the ground with four hatchet wounds, and she was badly burned, and she was just barely clinging onto life. And unfortunately, she died while neighbors tried to help her. When those neighbors showed up, they relieved David and William, and they took over hose duty. Now, William lived, as did Herbert Fritz, who was the one that rolled down the hill, the first one to jump out the window and broke his arm. Tom Brunker suffered at the hospital for four days, but eventually succumbed to his injuries. And then David Limblum, one of the two that ran for help, ended up dying a few days after him. The survivors identified Julian as their attacker and a manhunt ensued looking for Julian. And they looked everywhere and this was a sprawling estate. Gertrude was found first and she was found hiding on the side of the road, shaking and crying in fear. And I guess she had run off the second she saw smoke and flames. She was taken to the jail and she was questioned, but Gertrude insisted that she had no idea where Julian was. She had not seen this coming and Gertrude denied any involvement. The search party hunted for Julian for hours until somebody got the idea to look in the furnace and it was summer. So the furnace wasn't on. And I guess Julian had crawled inside the furnace and waited, but he had swallowed a bunch of hydrochloric acid. Probably when he realized he couldn't really escape. He thought it was a fatal dose of hydrochloric acid, but he didn't die. Now, the angry mob wanted to lynch him on the spot, but police shielded Julian and took him to jail instead. Police tried to come up with a motive to explain what the hell happened. And some said Julian did it because he was about to be laid off and he was pissed. But Frank Lloyd Wright had said that Julian and Gertrude had put in their notice and that there was no drama about it. Frank said that Julian must have lost his mind. Some said there were disputes with other workers, but no one can really be sure of that because most of those workers had been killed. Julian himself never gave a motive, and he died of starvation seven weeks later. I'm not sure if he died because he didn't eat because he wanted to die or if he couldn't eat because of all of the hydrochloric acid he had drank. Possibly both. And regardless of motive, like, damn, why kill the kids? Like, what the heck did Maymoss kids have to do with any of this? I'm not justifying killing the adults, but like, I just can't come up with a motive that involves them. Now, besides the motive, another mystery that lingers with this case was that telegram that Frank got or that he said he received. The one that says, come as quick as you can, serious trouble. It was signed MBB. So he thought it was Mayma Bootenborswick. And the telegram came through at 2 p.m. The signature suggested it was Mayma, but if she sent the telegram, clearly she sent it before the murders. But she was the first one to die. But no one else in the house was alerted to any trouble. All the men were in the drafting room eating lunch that Julian served them after Mayma and the kids were attacked. Now, Frank was the one who said, I got a telegram from Mayma saying I need to come quickly. And he told the press that, but nobody actually saw the telegram. So we don't really know what the fuck is up with that. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe Frank misread the signature in his shocked state. But either way, that's another mystery in this case. Well, that sucks. And obviously Frank was devastated by what happened. Mayma was killed horribly and so were her kids. All of his favorite employees were killed and his magnificent house burned down. It was a big blow. 
Frank buried Mayma right there in the cemetery that's on the property next to the chapel. And Frank vowed to rebuild Taliesin. He rebuilt and he kept working and freelancing. And he turned a chunk of Taliesin II into an architecture school. But his architectural style definitely shifted after that. He was pretty much over the prairie style. And he got more fortress-like with his structures. Now, Frank did move on and got a girlfriend named Miriam. And like, just Frank's life could be an entire podcast. (laughs) And there are a lot of biographies and Frank's autobiography that you could look into if you're interested. There's so much. But I guess Miriam, she sucked. Well, I mean, he sucked too. But the two of them were a terrible match and they had a terrible relationship and it was super abusive. And Miriam had an addiction to morphine and she treated Frank horribly. And it just dragged on for years. And then in 1922, Kitty finally gave Frank a divorce. She dragged that shit out for so long. He left her in 1909. She held on to hope for 13 years that maybe he was going to come back. Like he left her, built an estate for his mistress, lived there for years, and then seven people were axed to death and the house burned down and then he rebuilt it and then got a new girlfriend. But still, maybe he'll come back. Damn. But finally, Kitty was like, you know what? (laughs) I don't think he's coming back. And also, Kitty was dying. So she's like, I guess I'll finally divorce him before I die. And the terms of the divorce stated that he had to wait a year after the divorce before he remarried. And then Kitty died in 1923 and the year was up. So Frank, thinking marriage would solve all their problems, he married Miriam. But guess what? It went horribly and they broke up six months later. So Frank tried to leave, but Miriam also made it difficult for Frank to divorce her. Her morphine addiction had gotten really, really bad. And Miriam was just following Frank and stalking him and making his life hell because he walked out on her. Then Frank met a dancer, Olga Lasovic Hinzenberg. I hope I said that right. And big shock, Olga was married. But Frank's got the riz, I guess. And she just left her husband, who was super pissed about Olga leaving. And in 1925, Olga and Frank moved into Taliesin. Yeah. Now, shortly after moving into Taliesin too, Olga fell pregnant. So Frank's seventh child was born. Then, in April 1925, Taliesin burned down again. I guess there were crossed wires from a new phone system. And they caused a fire that destroyed the living quarters again. And the fire destroyed Frank's collection of Japanese prints that he says was worth between 250K and 500K, which in today's money would be between four and $8.3 million. But that's just Frank math. I don't know. Now, at Olga's encouragement, Frank rebuilt Taliesin again, this time Taliesin three. And their daughter, Ivana, was born in December 1925. And I guess Frank's wife, Miriam, made their life a living hell through their whole relationship. And she even showed up at the hospital when the baby was born and made a giant scene. And then she got Olga's ex-husband involved in her drama. And Miriam talked Olga's ex-husband into filing for custody of their daughter because Olga had another kid from... (laughs) It was just madness. And Miriam even got Frank and Olga arrested in 1926 for violating the Mann Act. 
but the charges were later dropped. I'm telling you, this story is a lot. But I guess Miriam got bored or gave up or something because she quit bothering them after that. And she eventually gave Frank a divorce in 1927 and disappeared. Again, Frank was required to wait a year before remarrying after this divorce. And then in 1928, he married Olga. And they seemed to live happily ever after at Taliesin 3 for the rest of their lives. And they built Taliesin West in Arizona as their kind of winter home. So they would spend half the year in Arizona at Taliesin West and then the summers up in Wisconsin at Taliesin 3. Now, I could go on and on and on and on and on about Frank Lloyd Wright. He was really a character. (laughs) And seven people were killed in a house that he designed and lived in. One of the 400 structures that he created, 300 of which are still standing. Frank seemed like an arrogant son of a bitch. But you know what? He built cool things. And some random employee slash possible servant killed a bunch of people while he was at work. And we don't really know why. And that is wild. And that is the end of today's true crime story slash Frank Lloyd Wright biography. (laughs) If you liked today's story, please give me a thumbs up. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to see more from me. And be sure to leave me a comment and let me know what you thought and get your requests in for cases that you want me to cover on Cleaning and Crime because I'm going to do a lot of planning for season two. Thank you so much for watching today's video or for listening to today's podcast. I hope you all have happy holidays, Merry Christmas, whatever you celebrate. And I will see you back here in January for season two of Cleaning and Crime. Thanks again, you guys. I'll miss you. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube or TikTok or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise. If you have questions or case ideas to share, email me at cealiseclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes and all parties discussed are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.